Hey there, language lovers, Shannon Kennedy here with Benny Lewis for a new episode of the Language Hacking Podcast, where we're chatting with Grammarian, the grammar table proprietor, author of Rebel with a Clause, and an incredible member of the online language community, Ellen Joven. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, you can check out our bonus questions with Ellen over on our Patreon and you'll also get access to loads of other exclusive content. Some of the things we talk about with Ellen on this extended version of the episode are some of the most common grammar questions Ellen encountered on the road with the grammar table, how knowing more grammar frees you from the confines of grammar, Ellen's ideal day with languages, Ellen's advice for someone who dreads learning grammar, ways to make learning grammar easier and how to remember it better, and Ellen's grammar pet peeves. So you can listen to these bonus questions over at languagehacking.com slash patron. In our chat with Ellen, we also talk about words and worlds of New York and learning the languages around the city of New York, why many people hate grammar and why Ellen doesn't, the positives of getting outside and pairing language learning with walking, the story behind the grammar table, setting boundaries around grammar and common misconceptions, ways grammar rules can actually be somewhat arbitrary, regional uses of languages and loving our linguistic diversity, how the grammar table has also been an opportunity for Ellen to learn about other languages, the power of humility in all things, and playing with languages and loving grammar and how things are put together. So let's get into our chat with Ellen. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 109. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I am your host, Benny Lewis. I'm joined as always by Shannon Kennedy. And today our guest is Ellen Joven, who is very famous for her grammar table. And she is just about to come out with a book, Rebel with a Clause. So we're going to have a fascinating chat with her today about grammar and about her story. And I can't wait to share it with you. So thank you, Ellen, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to see a human face. Two human faces, in fact. As are we all. So let, let's, before we get into the meat of uh, what you've been doing most recently, I'd love to hear just the longer story of how you got inspired to get into grammar and into languages in general. I've been interested in language my whole life, but I would say that my experiences in elementary school were really formative and kind of, they fed that appetite. I loved everything we did in, in elementary school relating to language, reading books, uh, doing spelling lists, learning handwriting, um, learning the parts of speech. I loved all of it. And it's just fed, fed me for my entire life. So around the time that I met you, you had a website called, I think it was Words and Worlds of New York. And you were taking part in a project to essentially learn as many of the languages you heard around New York as you could. So can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind it, what you were doing, and, and describe that project in detail? Well, as I recall, first of all, it's impressive that you got the name right, because one thing I always found about the title of that project is that it was very hard for me to say, which is probably slightly problematic when you name something. 
I was feeling a lot, a sense of loss because I'd realized how much of my language knowledge that I'd had in, in, in college and in graduate school had faded. And, uh, I just became suddenly aware that there are all these language resources out there that I could avail myself of. And I didn't need to sign up for class. I could just do things on my own. And I happened to love New York. I chose the city. I didn't grow up in it. I grew up in Los Angeles and I came here because I wanted to, I just wanted to have the the New York adventure. So those two things intersected and I just, uh, you know, I went to the New York public library. So it was really a very New York institutional kind of experience. I went to the New York public library, got materials for Russian and started studying them. And then, you know, it just unfolded over a period of years. And that is how I met both of you actually through that, that community, which was networked online and, you know, people just geeked out about language all the time. So when it comes to people geeking out about languages, one thing that is notorious is the distaste for grammar. And that's obviously very different in your case. And so I would love to hear what your thoughts are on the whole thing that when people get into languages, they're put off by the grammar of the language. And why do you think that happens? And why do you have a passion for grammar? You know, the, human beings are a mystery. And I wish I had a linear and, a, you know, very clear and certain answer to that question. For, for me, for some reason, it's like a magic land. I just always loved it. And, you know, I should mention also my eighth grade grammar class where I learned traditional sentence diagramming, which I, I don't think people really did much outside of the United States, but which, which was very popular here for a number of uh, school generations, that really created an anchor in my head that I could build on. So I think in general, people don't like doing things that feel hard. And so if I, let, let's say I picked up a new language and I opened up a book and looked at, you know, something that explained the different conjugations of the verbs. If I didn't know all those terms already, that would be a turnoff. It wouldn't be fun for me. But I had such a solid education in that from such an early age. So the terminology was familiar and I didn't have to go running to other books to look things up so much. And for me, I think it's just, you know, the way my brain works, you know, for example, you know, Pimsleur audio lessons, which you may, I, you may recall, I'm just obsessed with. For me, I learn a sentence on Pimsleur if I understand. So, you know, they they feed me a, a sentence and there's a particular structure in it. If I know about the grammar from my grammar books, I can start and I learn a little vocabulary. Besides that, I can start plugging things in into that sentence and expanding my ability to communicate in it. I think it doesn't work that way for everyone. But I remember that in particular with Italian, I would learn a sentence. And then I was also doing grammar books and vocabulary books on the side. And I was able to substitute new words in and build new sentences way more quickly than I would have without actually understanding the underlying grammar. That does not work so well in languages with a lot of declensions. I mean, you can't just start substituting in nouns and adjectives in Polish and end up with the right sentence because all the forms have to change. But for some, it does work and it accelerated. For me, I guess a lot of people who study grammar in school, it actually gets in the way of their learning how to speak, you know, because they're sitting there filling out, you know, filling in blanks and exercises. But I don't feel that happened with me. I feel it, it augmented my ability to communicate with other people. I know we're going to get back to grammar in just a moment, but before we do, you just mentioned Pimsleur, which is one of the things that you and I initially bonded over because we are both huge Pimsleur fans. And you are somewhat well known for 
going on walks around Central Park while listening to Pimsler and not caring if the people around you hear you responding to yourself or to the podcast you're hearing in your headphones in another language. So can you talk a little bit about how those two activities kind of came together for you and and if you find any benefits in, in doing a physical activity while learning your languages? I'm I'm having a nice flashback to our early our early encounters over that. That's nice to think about. That was a long time ago. I mean, that was actually that was 13 years ago. Do you realize that? Wow. Okay. So yeah, I it's hard to picture how these things work if you haven't actually done these lessons. But I, you know, I mostly did Pimsleur. I also did vocabulary, Michelle Thomas, you know, and other other stuff I would find. But those are the Pimsleur was the most common. And I think exercise. I believe, you know, people, people have done studies on it, that it helps. It sort of makes you, I don't know, it makes you smarter while you're walking and, and learning. And so there's no reason these days, although there was back in 2009, there's no reason in these days to worry about talking to yourself while you walk around Central Park, because now everyone does it. So I'm just like one, you know, fit right in. <laughs> but, but then it, it was sometimes a little funny to be talking to myself so much. And especially when the sound inventory is quite different from an English, you know, it can sound like I'm strangling or gargling or whatever, if it's not a sound that's familiar to me in particular, and I'm tr- struggling to replicate it. But I just feel like the blood flow and the trees and the birds, like looking at stuff, it just made it so feel like such a big thing. You know, the, the, it's not just talking to yourself. It's even if you're not talking to a person in that moment, it's like hope for a bigger world and for a larger future with more communication. And, and I'm, I'm doing it right now, in fact, because, you know, during the pandemic, I didn't talk to a lot of people. I'm really starved for contact. So thank you so much for speaking to me today. <laughs> but I got rusty, you know, because I wasn't speaking. I wasn't practicing during the pandemic. So now I'm like out there refreshing the languages I think I'm most likely to use in the months to come as quickly as I can. And uh, in fact, I even went to sleep last night to Portuguese, to Brazilian Portuguese. That's not exercise. It also helps me go to sleep. So I, the exercise helps the Pimsleur and the Pimsleur helps the sleeping. And other than Pimsleur, another thing that you're very well known for in the community is, is going close to your house in, in New York, opening up a fold-up table and having a sign on it that says, ask me a grammar question. And where, where on earth did that idea come from? And I'm sure you've had so many fascinating interactions because of it. So tell us all about that. You know, it's hard for me to remember the precise logical steps that led to it. But I think the basic arc of it is I was spending too much time online. I got sick of computers. You know, you really, you know, these language groups, you can really get sucked into them. You're like haggling over. No, that's a different case. No, this is, you know, like you can, you can really get, you can end. And actually you can end up more time speaking about the languages than studying them if you're not careful, because that's also really a lot of fun. And I just started to feel grumpy and over, you know, overwhelmed with how much time I was actually on a computer. So I wanted to be out more. And I remember seeing there's a bookseller who set up a stand of books, not not used books, but his actual own publishing company in my neighborhood. And I, you know, I remember thinking, 
oh, look at this serious book guy, like hanging out in front of the grocery store, like just selling books. It just seemed so bizarre to me that someone could just do that. I thought you'd have to go get a license and whatever. I mean, maybe he has one, but um, I realized that I could just set up a table because I wasn't selling anything. I was just answering grammar questions. It's free. It's free grammar speech. You can literally just, if you're not taking up a lot of space, blocking traffic, and you're not selling something, you can go talk to people. So I thought, oh, I can do that. I like talking about, you know, nerdy stuff like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out there. That's really probably the main thing. And so I just, I just made the sign and like went off to Canada. And I think Shannon, I saw you that, that after at that moment, right before the fall began. And then, and then uh, just started doing it in September when it got a little cooler and you, you have to be comfortable at the grammar table. You cannot answer questions sweaty because, or should I say answer questions sweatily? <laughs> because, because you, things might go astray. I want to talk about the grammar table a little bit more because based on what I've seen following you, you've had some pretty cool interactions at the table, um, specifically with some of the younger generations, um, some with people who tend to be a bit more combative with you over things. And then just like some other fun stories, unexpected situations where people are like, huh, and just pure curiosity. So can you talk about some of your most favorite interactions running the grammar table? There's so many. It's so hard to pick. I feel I should mention here, I, I've been in 47 states with it. So it's a lot of, of ground to cover in my brain. <laughs> I did get a kick. So one place I set up was, was in Texas, actually, in Austin, in Zilker Park there, which is a big popular park. And I was just hanging out on a trail. And, you know, Brant, my husband is always with me because he filmed this whole thing too. So we were just hanging out on the trail and people were riding by on bikes and walking by. I had tree branches kind of dangling into my hair because I was trying to be a little bit off the path and there was greenery there. And this guy who was jogging by shirtlessly, you know, he jogged by once and he kind of looked, it stopped and looked and looked curious. And then he came back and he was all excited. Like he wanted a picture for his mom and he wanted to talk about how um, he hates when people use that, that, you know, in English, you often see those words together. That was very irritating to him. And he wanted to talk about it. He said, I know it's right, but it's irritating. And there was something that was just so, it's not just the grammar, it's the humor. It's that someone would stop and talk to me, a random stranger, and that we can be so friendly because it's a, like a it's like a dork focus, like a dorky focus that brings people together. And I think the um, so for me, the grammar is really, really important. I love the grammar. It's just a great topic um, and people have a lot of emotion about, but also just makes people come up like, you know, for example, in, in Venice Beach, there was this whole family. I was right on the boardwalk next to a guy who was making these very elaborate sandcastles. He was not delighted I was next to him, by the way. Um, but he was making these very elaborate sandcastles. And so there are a lot of tourists going up and down Venice Beach Boardwalk. And this family with this very strict, friendly, but very strict grammar dad came by. He's really into grammar and he had three kids. He was there with his wife, his three kids. And so he's happy to see this grammar table because then you can, you know, connect it with his home activities. He's, he was, I think he was a writer too. And so he started quizzing his kids there, you know, and they're like, they're in bathing suits. They're little, they're two boys and a little tiny girl. And, uh, he wanted them to answer the question. Do you want to go to the park with Jack and blank? And he wanted to know whether it would be me and I, so he's just quizzing the kids there. It was a little intense, but very, but fun and in good spirit. And what other chance would I have to just speak to random families like that on the street? 
it feels like such a luxury to me. Ultimately, it does. It is a source of frustration because, like you said, that that person on the trail in Austin was saying that this uh, this usage of that was right but irritating. So, like, where do we where do we draw the line for when we're prescribing this is how everyone should speak versus technically this is right, but who cares if you say fewer instead of less? I'm not going to get mad at you. Like, how do you decide which ones are the ones that are actually worth pushing for and which ones are just like, yeah, okay, that's the rule, but language is, is more flexible. So say it the way you want to say it. Well, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what the actual rules are. You know, in, information trickles down and sometimes things are packaged incorrectly or taught incorrectly. As an example, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the United States, a huge percentage of Americans believe that you can't begin a sentence with because. They think you cannot do it. It's ungrammatical. And so I was never taught that because, you know, it's not actually true. I mean, you're, you're little kids, the teachers don't want little kids to say, because I'm hungry, period. They want them to learn to write complete sentences. And that is just a fragment. But you can absolutely begin with because and keep going. Because he embezzled millions of dollars, comma, he spent the rest of his life in jail. That's a legitimate sentence. And it has a, a literary and artistic purpose to begin like that. So um, I spend quite a considerable amount of time at the grammar table addressing what are grammar myths that hobble people in their writing. Another one, um, you know, that people are taught that's not, that's not true. I was taught, I was actually taught this one in school, I believe. Um, you shouldn't end sentences with a preposition. So that's a misconception about the structure of language that's supposedly, I mean, I wasn't around for this, but supposedly is that among people who paid attention to languages that that is, was a misapplied idea from Latin based on that, the grammar of that language. So often people are happy to be disabused of things they believe from what, from their childhood. Sometimes they're not, you know, like people will get really mad about stuff like farther and further, you know, one woman was very irritated that people use further when she thinks they use farther. It's a good thing she didn't hear me talking. Because I do that. I use further for distance sometimes. And I don't feel at all bad about it because I think literarily these um, these very rigid rules, you can find so many examples or rules. I'm going to put rules in air quotes. These very rigid examples are often directly contradicted by what you see in excellent literature over time. And that's where I begin. I don't begin with, you know, what I think I remember from third grade, which half the time isn't true anyway. People misremember stuff all the time. But I begin with the with books and 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 the art of communication and then work backwards from there. Not to be controversial, but I'm going to be controversial. Isn't grammar like, aren't grammar rules just kind of arbitrary to begin with? Because it's not like language is invented out of these rules. The rules come from common practices and common usage of the language. So wouldn't the way that people use language commonly, you know, in whatever size area be the rules for that area? So like, there's not one like, this is the English grammar, and it has to be this way. Aren't there kind of maybe not documented or not written or not in theory practiced, but many forms of, of grammar rules that are acceptable? In general, I'd answer that. Yes, there are um, constraints. You know, for example, if I want to publish something 
in uh, you know for a sophisticated U.S. audience, there there are some things I have to pay attention to. If I don't, there a copy editor is going to come along and fix them in certain contexts, in many contexts. When I worked as a freelance journalist, I couldn't just do anything I wanted. I had to punctuate and uh, you you know spell and use word forms in a way that uh, corresponded to sort of the general tradition of publishing. Um, but there are departures all the time for, you know, literature. There are all kinds of creative departures. I have departures, especially in dialogue in my book. I mean, the things that come out of my mouth, you know, which show up in the book too, they aren't always as I would want them to be in the moment if I were thinking more carefully about it. So there are different dial, And also English, you know, contrary to what some people seem to believe, <laughs> there are multiple varieties of English with their own standards and principles and, and idioms um, that can't be managed from a single country. That is not the country where those dialects are spoken. So I am a big fan of language diversity, but I also think there's sometimes confusion about what that means. It doesn't mean that you can just put anything you want on the page and people should just be fine with it. It has to have a bit of discipline for the context you're in and the audience you're writing for. Yeah, these these uh, like exceptions to the rule are something I find absolutely fascinating. And since, like you said, you were... Um, listening to Portuguese just the other night. Uh, an example I really love is specifically to the Carioca dialect th that they speak in Rio. They have this really fun thing where they conjugate incorrectly. So they say, tu sabi, which they should be saying, tu sabis. They should add that S to it. But they use a third person conjugation with a second person. And this, it's like grammatically incorrect, but it's it's just how they speak in Rio in the kind of slang version. And for me, that is just a fun aspect of the language. So like what other fun things that technically are incorrect, but are just in an enjoyable variation from the norm have you come across? One thing I find pretty interesting in English is the problem of the second person pronoun. So, you know, if you head into the South and, and some other, I, I actually, there, there are all kinds of places where people use it. I don't know the exact distribution these days because it's spreading the y'all thing, Y apostrophe A-L-L -L, for the plural second person pronoun. And I grew up in California. I went to school in the 1970s and early 1980s. And I went to an all girls school for six years and we said, you guys all the time. Like I hardly ever saw a boy, but it was you guys to the girls. And a lot of people don't like that now, especially, I don't remember, a dis I mean, there might've been a discussion about it back then. I, I, I wouldn't have known because I was in high school, but, but um, I grew up saying you guys. And when you grow up saying something a particular way, it's often very hard. That's very basic. It's very basic how I address multiple people. I still say you guys, I try to reduce it because I don't want to, you know, I don't want people to be bothered by it. Some people just see a gender association with that word. I mean, I'm just here to say there isn't in my brain because I said it to girls my whole life. And believe me, I was not dating or seeing any boys for a significant portion of that. <laughs> um, even our, even our cats were female, you know? That's so it was it was all an all girl situation, but I cannot. And so some people say, well, why don't you just say y'all? That's gender gender neutral. I cannot do it. it like it just doesn't fit. It's not going to happen. So I often 
I, I can say you all, if I really need for clarity to clarify, I'm talking about more than one person, or I say you and just hope for the best, you know, in writing that or writing or speech that people will know, I mean, more than one person. But um, that for me is a, a fascinating example of regional variations that I think are poorly understood. I think it's not, you know, it's not, you don't have to think that, uh, you know, I'm sexist because I use you guys and you don't have to think I'm a weirdo because I can't figure out how to use y'all. Like it just takes, it's a wiring thing in my brain. And I'm, you know, I'm 56 now. So it's a little bit, it's hard to, it's hard to overcome some of these, these things. Sometimes I'm like, you, (laughs) and then I stop and go a different way. Uh, I have one that I want to share with you and maybe it'll triggers another example for you, but it's a lot of my friends in the Midwest, I've noticed that they don't say frustrated or flustered. They say frustrated. So they've almost combined the two words, which I actually think is quite awesome because a lot of the time you're frustrated, you're also flustered. So to be frustrated or find something frustrating is really interesting. And it's something that like there was one friend in particular that I noticed said it quite a bit. And now I've started to hear it from other people from the same area. And I just really like that example of, of something kind of developing and, and forming and, and becoming something else. Is it, Do you have any examples of, like that for yourself? I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I would like to say that that word is perfect for me. And it describes what happens when I have to approach technology problems. (laughs) So I think um, I'm going to immediately adopt that. I am always interested in regionalisms. I tend, you know, the way my head works, I tend to work, remember grammar structures a lot better than I remember idioms and where they're used and etymology like that, that stuff, I just constantly have to look up over and over again. But I am really I love one thing I love doing is polls about regional usage on my grammar table Twitter account, because it's just so much fun. People delight, you know, it's like in relationships too. people often pick on each other for dialect differences, you know, like Grant doesn't, my husband doesn't understand why I say certain things the way I do. And I don't understand why he says certain things the way he does. That's fun. I mean, as long as you're not mean about it, there's play and there's humor in it. So I love hearing about it. And if anyone wants to message me on Twitter, on my Twitter account, a poll idea, I may post to that. And we'll make sure that uh, your Twitter account is in the show notes. So people definitely will see that connected to this episode. We focus mostly on English so far, but I'm sure that uh, as people approach the grammar table, they're not just asking about English grammar. I'm sure they ask you questions about grammar from other languages. So how have other languages been incorporated into the, the grammar table? This is, first of all, very, for me, it's amusing the situations I find myself in sitting there because on my sign, I have a lot of suggestions for people to prompt topics in case they don't know what to talk about with me. And one of the things that I can see the sign from where I'm sitting right now, I just checked, it says any language right in the upper left-hand corner. So then sometimes people come up and they're like, you speak all the languages? (laughs) No, of course I do not speak all the languages. That would be a big project and I would need to be about a billion years old for that and have a lot of practice time. (laughs) But what I want to send out into the world is a willingness to talk about any language, maybe to suggest language learning projects products to people who want to study or, you know, I don't know, languages to study if they want suggestions for that, but also to learn. Like I, I like when people teach me stuff, I've had people write things out for me, show me interesting features of their languages. I mean, people 
there's a lot of tourism in the U.S. So I've a lot of the places I've gone where there's been a lot of foot traffic because I have to go where there's foot traffic. There's no point in sit, sit, sitting at the grammar table on a corner that no one ever walks by. That would be a very lonely grammar table. So I see a lot of tourists and they often bring bring me knowledge about the languages they speak that I don't know. I always have at least two languages represented at the table because I want people in the U.S. at this juncture in U.S. history, which has been you know, it's been challenging for a lot of people to feel that their languages are welcome, that they're appreciated. Um, I do sometimes get approached by people who don't speak um, English. And then I usually the language they speak is Spanish. So that's the one I end up speaking most often at the table. Um, and one of the ones that it's one of the ones I'm most comfortable in. But we, we might end up marveling about um, verb tenses, you know, a subtle verb tense issue that you can't express in English. Every language has unusual limitations. And I remember, I can't think of a good example now, but when I've studied languages, I sometimes come across something where I can't do something I'm used to doing in English. Oh, I mean, just for example, the absence of articles in other languages. It's so, you know, it's strange in both directions. So people who speak Russian, for example, find articles very challenging in English. And I found going the other direction kind of weird too. It kind of challenges and tickles your brain and expands your horizon. Another thing that I remember also being delighted by, well, amazed by is more like it. I had studied languages that are pretty similar to English when I left school. I was, and by school, I mean university. I know people don't always understand it that way. I had studied German, French, and Spanish. There's a lot in common with English, but then you get into other languages and you realize the word order is wildly different. Like Korean, when I was doing those, I can't remember whether I discussed this with you, Shannon, back in the day, but um, when when I was doing Pimsleur Korean lessons, the alt, the different word order was so hard for me. So you get the, the, the prompt in English and then you'd have to translate it into Korean. And by the time I figured out how I had to switch around the words, they'd be on to the next sentence. I got very grumpy, <laughs> but I figured that kind of, um, that kind of challenge is good for me. And I think it's good for English speakers generally who have such an easy language time in the world, because it's so often the case that people speak English alongside their own native languages, or Americans are just not challenged enough in that way in realizing how many different tongues there are in the world and how much of the world's activity is actually not conducted in English. So my next question for you is a little bit more about personality and how to deal with different situations, because whether you're introducing people to grammar at the grammar table or trying to practice your language with someone, you're going to come up on situations where you don't necessarily understand or have an answer. So when someone comes to the grammar table and you don't know the answer to their question, what do you do? How do you keep yourself from freaking out and getting nervous and, and shutting down and, and still being able to carry on the conversation and, and interact with someone who maybe brought something that you don't know the answer to? First of all, um, it doesn't happen that often. And, and I'm not trying to say that to be obnoxious, but it just, it is usually about English. You know, if they asked me about all, all, you know, hundreds of languages, of course it would be constant, but usually it's about English and it's usually something that I address. I mean, I've been teaching grammar for most of my adult life in some form or another. So I know what the questions are and I'm accustomed to answering them. But I think also, and this is a, a life philosophy that 
that's very important to me, this idea of grammar humility or just humility in, in all things. You don't have to know everything and people who behave in the world as though they do. I, you know, I find that off-putting because it's a big, big world. I, you know, I encounter authorities, authorities um, or ostensible authorities in English sometimes who are very certain about the language. They have a lot of certainty. And it's often when that's the case, it's often that they're embedded in a certain dialect and are not really encountering the variety that's out there. I know that there's a huge amount of variety because I see it just even in my corporate teaching work in New York City. There's so much language variety. So what you think may be right may really not be right, or, or may not be right in a certain place. Um, it may not be the way it's done. And knowing that there are so many things I don't know makes me feel not bad about not knowing things when people ask me something surprising. In addition, I always bring out reference books because the life I want to model is the life I live, which is that I look things up all the time. I don't say, I know that this is true because Ms. Smith taught it to us in sixth grade English and we used that book and that's what it said because you don't know that. You don't remember what the page looks like unless you're one of those few, very few people who have that kind of weird memory. You don't know what was on the page. You don't remember. And if you can accept that um, knowledge is big. There's a lot of language knowledge out there and there are a lot of languages. If you accept that it's big, then I, you don't feel pressure. I feel like it's not about proving myself. It's about engaging in a dialogue with other human beings in a way that we can all enjoy and learn from. Yeah, I like that. Now, one thing that we've uh, referred to briefly that I want to uh, discuss a bit is this uh, book you've got co coming out. So Rebel with a Clause Tales and tips from uh, a roving grammarian. Did I get that right? That's right. So what is this all about? What inspired you to write this book? And what do you dive into in, the, in, in its pages? Well, at some point after I'd been out on the streets, outside, <laughs> after I'd been on the streets for a while, I uh, ended up thinking about taking it on the road. And uh, so I, I was mostly literally just outside my building. Like I would walk, you know, it would take me one minute to walk to where I set up from once I exited my building. But I had these little trip side trips, like I took it on the subway, I took it to uh, Central Park, I went to some other places, and I started to think that it could be cool to take it on the road. So I, I wrote a book proposal, um, suggesting that I gallivant. Actually, I at one point proposed something about gallivanting grammarian in the um, subtitle, but that didn't fly with the publisher. <laughs> but I hope to be able to use that at some point for something else. Gallivanting gra grammarian. And um, I also just love traveling around the U.S. I'd already done that with my husband a couple of times, you know, road trips where we would drive to the other side of the country and see the sights. I love seeing all kinds of places. So I'm not, I'm not like for me, flyover states don't exist. Every place has its qualities that are enjoyable to learn about and to where to meet people in. So that was not a novelty to me. So it just merged that interest, travel and seeing new people and places and just merged with the grammar. And I, I got a book deal and set out on the road. And actually, originally, I was not planning to go to quite this many states, but then I got into the rhythm you know about the travel rhythm. You're, you're like an expert on that, Benny. So I got into the travel rhythm and I realized, oh my gosh, I could actually go to all 50 the way I'm doing this. I could, I could map it out. And we got very close. We got to 47 
my husband and I, he went everywhere and, you know, had had cameras attached to the table. So this is all on camera. The dialogue that you see in the book is really almost entirely from things that we have video for. So transcripts, you know, that you see really what people said in the moment. Um, I mean, edited for clarity and readability, but we got to 47 in January of 2020. And as you may recall, there were some subsequent events that made it a little difficult to get the last few done. So we stopped at 47, but I took it to 49 cities and towns from uh, 1000 person towns to the largest cities in the country. And um, I write about those in the book divided, you know, there are all these lang language anecdotes that I culled from all that material and they're divided up by topics. So if you want to read about semicolons, there's a chapter called semicolon phobia. If you want to read about, you know, me versus I, there's material on that. And the answer to the sentence, by the way, with the grammar dad earlier, I feel I should just say the answer was me. Do you want to go to the park with, I think I can't remember the name I used with Jack and me. A lot of people say I there, but me is you want the object form and that, yeah, and then, you know, what's really what worked out well, I couldn't go out when the pandemic hit. I was I'm in New York. So it was really like sirens all night and day and stuff like that. But I had to write a book. So it was sort of perfect timing. It kept me inside and I got more work done. So I hope I'm not assuming incorrectly here, but it seems like one of the things you really enjoy about language is alliteration between the gallivanting grammarian, the words and worlds, and then tales and tips. So what other aspects of language beyond alliteration do you find you really enjoy? You are correct that I do stuff with that. I try, I really try not to go too crazy because it can be really annoying if you do that too much but I, I succumb to it pretty regularly. I enjoy trying, as an example, in the acknowledgements for the book, you know, where you say who you appreciate and all, and, and wait, I'm making it sound like I didn't really appreciate them. I did appreciate everyone in my acknowledgements. But when I was writing the acknowledgements, I thought, oh, this would be really great to make it one sentence. So I made it, I made it one sentence. The acknowledgements are actually just one sentence. It's a, you know, it's a page of acknowledgments. It's not super long, but to construct a sentence that was still manageable and that read easily, that was like an artistic challenge for me. And I, I love, I enjoy that. I let, I love mix. I love playing with sentence structure, like the actual anatomy of the sentence and going from short to long ones. And that's one way I think that I'm very conscious of grammar in writing that I enjoy thinking about how things are put together and maybe rearranging them if I think something would be more exciting. So that's a very technical thing that connects in my mind to the, lit the literary quality of the words. Yeah, for me personally, if I was trying to do a whole page in one sentence, I would, cons I would consult a German. <laughs> <laughs> you could also try a Russian person. Yeah, that's right. Um, so with the book coming out, I'm very curious now, that what are your upcoming projects? Like with the world potentially opening up, you could um, finish those final states. But like, what else do you have uh, in, uh, in mind for the next years? You know, I'm so enamored of this project. I mean, as with my previous language learning project, which lasted for years and years, um, I do tend to get 
attached to the to the things I start. And I am so not tired of this that I can just imagine roaming around like right now I'm thinking, can I go out with the table later today? What's the weather like? Is it too hot? Is it going to rain? Like, I'm, you know, I, I love thinking about that and just going out and, and talking. So I do plan. My husband and I are planning to go to the missing states, especially because one of them is Connecticut, which I can practically see from our building. So it's sort of ridiculous. No, that's a little bit. That's a that's slightly exaggerated. But I can see I can see New Jersey. I can't see Connecticut. So Connecticut definitely is on the list. Um, the other two states that I'm missing are Hawaii and Alaska. You know, such it would be such a burden to have to go to Hawaii again. I've, uh, you know, just terrible to have to think about going to a beautiful place with nice trees and weather and sunlight. I don't, you know, but I'm real. I'm willing to suffer for my art. And Alaska is actually the one state of the 50 I've never been to. I think you've been to a lot of states, haven't you, Benny? By the by the end of the this trip, which will be wrapping up as this episode's going live, I will have seen 44 states. So I'll only have six left. I mean, that is that's crazy. That is so much more than than the average person who grew up here. So, you know, but you you are a you do have the travel bug a bit. So I can understand that. And then I don't know, I would love I would love to go to schools and set this up. Uh, you know, I'm happy to be entertainment at a at a wedding. I think that would be good, don't you think? Like if you have kind of geeky language guests, I could sit there and answer questions. I just think there's so many possibilities for it. And I'm so excited to have a chance to be out in the world more and just talk and listen. I mean, I don't just talk at people. This listening is a very important part of talking. So, there, you know, I, I like to think that it's a kind of grammar therapy that I provide. And so you really have to hear people and what they want to what they want to say and what they want to know. Um, my last question for you, given that this is the language hacking podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Oh, dear. My definition of language hacking. You know, I think I'm an unhacking person in a sense in that. I'm so I'm sort of like a trees person, you know, like people, the forest is the forest is hacking, you see the big picture, you see the patterns, I just enjoy the details so much. And it's often so unsystematic, like I'm, I'm messy. I'm a, I'm a pretty messy person. I don't like to admit that publicly, but oh, actually, I don't really mind admitting that publicly. <laughs> but even one of my earliest childhood memories of the of the five or six early childhood memories is of writing the alphabet. I was in California, Northern California. I was a tiny little girl. I mean, I don't know my exact age, but I was quite young. Um, so I just recently learned the alphabet. And instead of writing it in order, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like the normal human being would, I had this piece of drawing paper and I put the letters all over the place. This is my memory, you know, A in one place, B somewhere else. I think they're all pointing different directions. For me, that was the, that, that just feels like how, how I think about it now that whatever happens, happens. And I think for me, the, the, the joy, I guess the hack maybe is that you like something enough that you stick with it enough that somehow through the, the chaos and the mess along the way that language is, because it is just a big pile of all kinds of things that the joy carries you through and makes you committed enough that you want to come out on the other side with some knowing something more than you went in. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us today. And uh, it's been very interesting. And of course, in the show notes, people can check out uh, to either pre-order or to get it if it's available now. And uh, they'll see everything else, your Twitter, 
They can contact you if they want to book you for their wedding to be their, <laughs> their grammar table DJ, whatever title's going to be. <laughs> oh, that's a good one, Benny. Well, I'm, you know, th- thank you so much. Your questions are amazing, as I would expect of fellow language geeks. I loved them. And um, I'm just very sad that I have to stop talking now. Well, people can find you to, to join in those surveys and everything else that we've talked about. Thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we'll wish you, as always, happy language learning. Thank you. Happy language learning. end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we took away from our chat with our guest. And these are typically things that you can implement into your own language learning um, to try out and see how they go for you over the next week. So Benny, what was your takeaway in our chat with Ellen? Ellen is a grammarian and she literally has a table where people come and ask her all these questions about grammar. And I like what she shared about her view of humility with all of this that uh, her goal in life is to be able to look things up and that it's okay with that. And this is very comforting to me that that essentially a grammar expert is is not going to be saying she knows every single rule about grammar and she is ready at the drop of a hat to tell all of them to you. She said, knowledge is big and it's okay if you look things up. And this really reiterates to me this sense that I want to push back for people who are tempted by perfectionism, that you must know everything, you must know every aspect of a language before you speak it. Even when it comes to the grammar of her native language, Ellen admits that there are still some things that she has to look up. And I found that uh, very inspirational because it reminds us even the, the biggest experts on the planet are still aware that there's always more to learn. What about for you? On a related note about Ellen being an expert, because she really truly is an expert in grammar, but my takeaway was a little bit different. And it's that even though she's very clearly an expert, she has this amazing willingness to ask questions, keep learning, look outside herself and accept differences than what she's learned. So even though she may have this really strong foundation in in grammar or the way that things function, she doesn't say this is wrong with a lot of the differences. She just sees them as differences and she has this openness and desire to learn that I think is, is really incredible. And so it's, it's, you know, even on a smaller scale, just even within ourselves. So you could be studying your language and you are doing it your way. And it's like, no, I have to do it this way. Or no, this is like the best way to do it. Or no, this is what's working for me. Taking on some of that openness, taking on some of that isn't necessarily the most correct way and being willing to adapt and being being willing to accept and being willing to try and being willing to continue to learn and develop yourself because even if it's not necessarily directly related to language learning, when you learn something, it improves who you are, which in turn in some way improves the way that you learn languages or use languages or interact with people and have like personal interactions and relationships. So I would say it's it's just that openness, like try and push yourself to be a little bit more open this week than you might normally be and, and see how it feels and see what happens. Because I, I think it's a really positive quality that a lot of us could benefit from having a little more of. 
So thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Once again, you can get access to our bonus questions with Ellen and extended content and exclusive content over on our Patreon at languagehacking.com slash Patreon. And of course, we always love hearing from you. So please let us know what you think of the podcast or this episode over at languagehacking.com slash review. All of the links, resources, and everything else mentioned as a part of this episode are available to you in the show notes. And until the next time, and on the record, I am a proponent of the Oxford comma, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pascoe, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.